Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word. Thank You for all that You do to communicate Your heart to us, that You reveal Yourself in Your Word, that You reveal Yourself through Your Holy Spirit. I pray that now we would hear from You. pray that You'd open our eyes, open our ears, enable us to receive from You this morning in Your Word, in the truth. Quiet our hearts, Lord. God, we ask this in Jesus' name, in the name of the, the one and only Son. Amen. Well, good morning. It's good to be with you again to preach. My name's Joe Brinkman. I'm on staff here at Redeemer and um, love to be able to share the word every, every once in a while with you guys. Um, it's a joy. So, Isaiah 53 is a common passage that we're going through slowly in the, uh, over the last, well, last week and then in the next couple weeks. The suffering servant, right? This is the story of the suffering servant Isaiah talks about. It's the fourth of four servant songs in the book of Isaiah where he talks about this character, this person who's coming and maybe in one way arrived in the time of Isaiah, but ultimately will be fulfilled in the man Jesus. And that's who we're going to talk about this morning, is this man Jesus. And I want to share about Jesus with you. I want to say a few things about this man. He is a good man. He's the best man. I think sometimes in Christianity we can tend to paint Jesus as a mythological character. Jesus is the furthest thing from mythology. Jesus is more real than the very hand that I'm looking at. He made this hand. And not only did He make this hand, He made this heart. He made your soul. He made your body. And this Jesus is so good. He's a friend. It says in Scripture that Jesus is a friend of sinners. He is a friend that sticks closer than a brother. He is a friend who lays down his life for another. This is Jesus. He's such a good and close friend that he is with you when you are not with him. He's so close to you that when you feel distant, He is still near. And that's most felt in times of oppression and suffering and sorrow. And this passage shares with us about Jesus that He is so present in our sorrow, in our oppression. Can I grab that mic? I can already... Jesus has the perfect ears that microphones always stick to. I just need a little more Jesus in that area. 
I kind of like holding this. It gives me strength. It gives me power as I hold this mic. Some of you are laughing because you know how this went for me last time. I even did a, a dress rehearsal. I'm not joking. I, I tried it on. Donovan approved it. He, he signed a waiver. And I still can't get this thing to stay on my ear. For him who has ears to hold microphones, let him do that. But before we get too distracted, I want to I wanna really look at Jesus this morning. There's, there's a man named Andrew Brunson who was able to go to Turkey and be a minister of the gospel there for over 20 years. And you can, you can learn about him more if you come to the event on March 5th that's about the persecuted church. He's going to share his story with us um, on the screen. And he is... Uh, maybe you've heard of him. He was imprisoned after being there for 20 years. The Turkish government imprisoned Andrew Brunson because they said he was a spy. They said he was um, a, a terrorist trying to aid in the coup that occurred in 2016, the attempted coup in Turkey. And following that attempted coup, the government was cracking down on anybody that had anything to do with that coup. And they labeled him conveniently as a scapegoat in some ways, as a man who was part of that, though he was not. They knew he was uh, a Christian. They knew, obviously, he was an American. And so they used that conveniently against him as they took him from his family and put him in prison for two years. And while he was in prison, he shares a story that he didn't always feel close to God. He had struggled. He, had, he, he struggled to, to know that Jesus was actually with him. But in the midst of that, he also found God to be closer than he had ever known through it. And he was able to share the gospel with people in prison with him. He was able to be a minister of the truth in that context. And so I, I shared, he, I heard an interview with him that he, He's such a gentle man. I mean, he's just a really gentle man. And um, I don't know if you ever saw the interview that he had or, or the whole um, time that he was sitting with President Trump and Secretary of State Pompeo and all these men and all these women in the room in the White House. And they're sitting as uh, it was the day he had been released and, and flown back and all this. And you can imagine the, the, the way he was feeling sitting there with the president. All of a sudden, it must have been a dream to him or some kind of you know, almost like he, he could hardly even experience it, probably, caught up in all of the craziness of the moment. And yet, here he is, this gentle man, and he gets on his knees, and he prays for President Trump. Now, how many people are willing to pray for President Trump, let alone in his presence? This man had been with Jesus in the midst of oppression. This man had done nothing wrong in terms of why he was being accused. And he endured it. He's a very uh, gentle, powerful man. You need to hear his story if you can. But he found strength in the friendship of Jesus. He found strength. He talks about this and how, how he, he found this, this unique experience of God's presence in those moments of oppression. And I want to ask us this morning, what is your response to oppression? What is your response to oppression in this world? And a lot of you uh, may not feel like you've experienced deep oppression, and that's okay. 
But just existing in the world, you will, ex you will experience some kind of oppression. You don't have to be a martyr. You don't have to be somebody that has a cause. You can simply, by virtue of existing, if you have a dad, you've experienced oppression, right? Dads are not always patient with their children, right? There is a degree of this that we can all relate to. And how do you respond to it? How do you respond? I want to start with Jesus. How did he respond? Jesus, though innocent in every way, was oppressed. And not only oppressed, but he was oppressed for the oppressor. He was oppressed for the oppressor. The Apostle Peter makes mention of this in 1 Peter 2, starting in verse 22. He says of Jesus, he says, He committed no sin. Stop right there. He committed no sin. He was a man, by the way. He wasn't a superhero. He wasn't Spider-Man. He, he didn't have special superpowers except for the Holy Spirit. Check your theology, friends. Jesus was empowered to be a man by the power of the Holy Spirit. Not because he was God. He was fully man and fully God. And it says that by the Spirit, he did what he did. So we have him who committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Once again, in the power of the Spirit, he entrusts himself to who? To the Father. This is what Peter's saying. He continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Even the Son of God defers to the Father for strength. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. And by his wounds you have been healed. Peter is quoting directly from parts of Isaiah 53. And he's making the connection between Jesus and this servant, the suffering servant. If you want biblical merit for that, there it is. That Jesus is the fulfillment of this suffering servant. And so first, Jesus was oppressed. What does that mean? This text specifically says that he was oppressed because he was falsely accused. He ultimately was led to an innocent death. He was not guilty for what they charged him with. He was sinless. It says that he was oppressed. He was afflicted like a lamb led to the slaughter, like a sheep before its shearers is silent. He opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. But I think his oppression is 
a little more nuanced than, than simply he was falsely accused. Let's look at what Jesus, being a man, was oppressed by. There's a threefold oppression that some theologians use to describe our state in the fallen world. And those are, we are oppressed by the world, the flesh, and the devil. So we see that laid out in Scripture in many places, that it speaks of the world, it speaks of your flesh, and it speaks of an enemy called the devil or the Satan, the powers and principalities. And these three forms of, of oppression are, are, are always present. And Jesus, being a man, was no exception to suffering under that. These three elements, the world can... can consist of things like ideologies and your social context and even abuse and physical limitations. Anything that comes at you, that's from outside of you, that comes at you, that's a pressure, that's putting on you something. And Jesus was stuck in the middle of, for example, political turmoil. If you think about the context he was in socially and politically, that the Romans were oppressing the Jewish people. They were the conquerors. They were the, the ones that were usurping power, and, and they, they put little puppet kings in place like Herod to, to keep calm the people, but Herod was really just in the pocket of the Romans. And to this context is what Jesus came into. He was suffering under physical strains. He had limitations. He had a human body. If you don't think Jesus had a stomach ache, well, I guess that's what you think. I think he did. Just because he was perfect doesn't mean he didn't have pain. He was grieved. He wept. Why would Jesus weep? He had no sorrows of his own. He took on your sorrows. He was laden, heavy laden. He also, this is a tricky one, but the flesh, the flesh is what we identify often with indwelling sin. When especially Paul talks about the flesh in Romans 6 and 7 and in 8, he talks about the flesh and, and we associate it with indwelling sin, which it it. it is related to and it is identified as, but the flesh is a little more encompassing than that if you look at all of Scripture. It's related to your body, your literal body, the flesh, which is the interaction of body and soul, this complex thing, but the flesh is, is your desires that come from within you. The world is outside of you. It's things that happen to you. The flesh are things that are part of you that you do, that you think, that you act on. And this is, again, tricky. If Jesus was sinless, well, then he was, you know, he didn't even have a flesh. No. It's, we see that Jesus, if you look at um, the Garden of Gethsemane, the night before he's crucified, it says that he struggles in prayer, sweating drops of blood as he, as he engages with the Father in prayer, and he, and he says, not my will, but yours be done. Not my will, 
but yours be done. Remember what Peter says. He says that he entrusted his, himself to the one who judges justly. This doesn't mean that Jesus was ever tempted to go against the Father. They are united as, the, as one. And yet, we see in the life of this God-man, Jesus, that there is this oppression. And in the midst of that oppression of feeling the weight of what he's called to do and knowing that this is going to be hard, and yet knowing the joy of it at the same time, he is then visited by one, the devil. He comes to him in that garden. The devil had already come to him in the wilderness at the beginning of his ministry, before his ministry began. And he had tempted him, it says, three times, just like Adam was tempted in a garden called Eden. And Jesus overcomes the enemy by what? The Word of God. Again, Jesus has deferred to the Word of God. Do not put the Lord your God to the test, he responds to Satan. Some of you are saying, Gee, oh boy, Joe's, oh man, he's off. He's getting into heresy now. Jesus was God. Doesn't he know that? Yes, I know Jesus is God. I also know Jesus is a man. And we, we have to talk about his humanity. Because this passage talks about his humanity. It talks about a man who was like you in every way, and yet without sin. So he had the world, he had the flesh, and yes, the devil even in, in his life, speaking deception to him. And the enemy launched a direct attack on him. What is an overall conception of oppression? And I'm going to just read a quote from the Dictionary of Biblical Imagery, and it says this about oppression. In sum, the primary imagery of oppression is that of bondage, Rights taken away, property confiscated, life threatened, a resultant discouragement and fear. Oppression always has a human agent who imposes it. The gallery of oppressors from the pages of the Bible include Pharaoh, Ben-Hadad, Sennacherib, Nebuchadnezzar, and Herod. The archetypal oppressor might also be a class within a society, such as the wealthy people in the prophecy of Amos who oppressed the poor, the Pharisees of the Gospels, or Jews of the book of Acts. So we see here that there's this overall description of oppression that we can see in the life of Jesus and we can see in our own lives. So Jesus was oppressed, but not, he was also oppressed for the oppressor. There was purpose in his suffering. Isaiah 53, 8 here says he was stricken for the transgression of the people. He was stricken for the people, for their transgression. We might call this substitution. This word substitution is a, is a theological word. Uh, it's obviously a simple, plain word as well, right? We know what it means to substitute. You've got a basketball game. You've got a guy that's winded. He can't quite... Uh, keep up his, his shooting or whatever, the coach takes him out, puts a substitute in. 
We get this idea that one who needs help is substituted, or one who has some need or lack, or something has to be changed up. You take him out, you take that out, and you substitute one in. And the question is, what is Jesus substituting for? I want to read you something that this was, this was just amazing to me when I read this. It's about the ancient Near East is, is with the context of the book of Isaiah. And there's different kinds of kingdoms. There's Mesopotamia, there's Babylon, there's eventually Persia. There's all these cultures. And they had, there was common practice in some of these cultures about how to, how to address the threat to a king. And bear with me in this because you're going to have to, to listen closely. But this, listen, it's worth it, okay? It's worth it. You, I know you're, li- you're not used to listening to a long quote from a dictionary, but listen to this. This is a, not a dictionary, but a, a commentary on the, on, on the Scripture. The right of the substitute king was used in Assyria when evil omens suggested the life of the king was in danger. It is attested primarily... Uh, in the reign of this certain king that it was used for over a thousand years, this practice. It worked on the principle that evil could be transferred from one individual to another. You heard this before? That evil could be transferred from one individual to another. He became sin who knew no sin. And when the dangerous period was to occur, the king was replaced by a substitute on whom the evil fate could fall. In some cases, this substitute was someone considered of no significance, was perhaps even mentally or physically impaired. That's interesting. We read in another part of Isaiah 53 earlier on, right? What does it say? He was as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. He had no beauty that we should desire him. He was considered of no significance and was perhaps even mentally or physically impaired. He was then exalted to high status and office for as long as 100 days, though often a shorter period, During this time, the real king was kept in relative isolation and participated in numerous purification rituals. Meanwhile, the substitute was going through the motions of being king and sitting on the throne. He was portrayed as the shepherd, a common title for Mesopotamian kings. But one could understand that he was simply a sheep about to be slaughtered. At the end of the period, the substitute was put to death so that the evident design of the gods would be accomplished. Though omens had suggested that it was the will of the gods to crush him. Do you get this? Are you listening? you got to put your listening caps on. This king was threatened. So another was chosen to take his place. Someone the culture deemed expendable. He gets to act like king for a hundred days. And then they kill him to appease the gods. Friends, 
when Jesus substitutes for us, when he takes on our oppression, he's playing the role of one who is saving the king. Who's the king? Isaiah flips this on its head. Do you get this? Do you get this? He flips it on his head so that Jesus, the true king, the creator of all things, in him and by him and through him, where all things were created, he takes the role of a fake king that is intended to be slaughtered so that you, so that you would reign, so that you would be preserved as his people. This is substitution. It is not simply a nice, austere God who says, I have so many resources, let me bow to help these lousy humans. It's not like that. It's, it's a God who, who, can, who completely takes on the role of being one who is expendable. He identifies as you so that you would be as he is. Not that you would be a lifelong servant always thanking him, that you would be as he is, that you would be royal. This is substitution. And so Jesus was oppressed for the oppressor, the very ones that are oppressing him, he is dying for. He is undergoing this oppression for. There was purpose in this. And because there was purpose, and because he knew this, right, being God, he knows these things, and he, in the midst of oppression then, doesn't defend himself. He doesn't open his mouth. It says very clearly here in two places in verse in verse 7, it says, So he opened not his mouth like a sheep before its shearers is silent. He just lets them do it. And in verse 9, it says, There was no deceit in his mouth. He didn't speak deceit. He was silent in that regard. Matthew chapter 26 recounts the trial of Jesus before the Jewish leaders. And in verse 62, it says, The high priest stood up and said, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? They had had false uh, accusations against Jesus. They had paid off men to say something false about him. And in verse 63, they have said, What is it that these men testify against you? And Jesus, it says, he remained silent. But Jesus remained silent. And so we see this is a direct fulfillment of this prophecy in Isaiah that before his accusers, he is silent. He spoke no deceit because he was fighting on a different level. A lot of times we, we can feel like, oh, that's, that's right. That's the right thing to do. That's just the right thing to do, you know. When somebody reviles you, 
just, just be nice. You know, that's the right thing to do. But I'm telling you, if you know anything about being in a context of somebody falsely accusing you, the very last thing on your mind is to be silent. It's to, it's to get every bit of information you can to justify your innocence. Every scraggly bit of evidence out there. Every person that's ever known you. Can you just defend me for a minute? Can you just come to my aid for a minute? Andrew Brunson is probably thinking this when the Turkish government's arresting him, taking him from his wife and children. Can you just wait? I have, I have people that can vouch for me. It's not easy unless you know something else. Unless, you're a, unless you know there's a purpose in your oppression. Unless you know who you are. And then you, you, you rise above. And Jesus has done this. He, he has risen above because he knows there is something else going on. He knows he is his son. Peter, again in this passage in 1 Peter, he, he tells us to do the same thing. He says in verse 13, I'm going to read this because it relates to all the situations we find ourselves in submitting to others. He says in verse 13, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering just unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if, when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. And then he goes on to say what we already read. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. So Peter is, is using the example of Christ in this passage and saying to his readers, he's saying, do likewise. But he's not only saying do it because it's the right thing to do. He's saying do it as Christ did it. Do it as Christ did it. For to this you have been called. That's a very interesting phrase. He doesn't say, for to this you have been obligated. He doesn't say, for to this, this is what, you know, Christians do. He said, you've been called. The word calling refers to purpose. There's, there's intention. There's purpose. There's direction to what you suffer. This is not just ethics and doing the right thing. There, this is connected to a storyline. And only if you find yourself located within that story will you actually do it. There is purpose to your suffering. Now, I want to take a minute because 
we need to explain what we mean when we say that we want, that, that the Lord calls us to be silent in the midst of oppression. I think there are certain ways that this looks in certain circumstances. Unfortunately, there are times when oppression comes within your own home. Oppression can happen in your own home, in your own Christian home. As many as one in every four women have experienced physical abuse from an intimate partner. That's roughly 25 women in this room right now. So let's be sensitive and let's think about this. If we consider other forms like emotional abuse, the numbers just go up, okay? So this is about us, not just about the culture out there. This is about us. It's more common than we think. It's more significant than we think. And it's not unlike the oppression that Jesus is talking about. The reason is, there are often times in situations within a home where one is falsely accused. We all have sin, right? Every human has sin. That doesn't mean you're guilty of every sin someone accuses you of. And that is significant. This happens in our homes. People are falsely accused and they are treated based on those false accusations. They are punished. And I want to make a point here because we need to talk about this. This is significant. What is the response? If we look at the word here, what is the appropriate response to that? What do we say to that? You've heard me. I've been saying that the Jesus calls us to be as he was. What does that look like, though, in these very sensitive situations? How do we respond? How do we encourage others to respond? Well, I think the first thing we see is, at the heart level, speak no deceit. We are still called to speak no deceit against those who oppress us unjustly. Speak no deceit. This is the heart level. But can you leave an oppressive situation? Is it okay to leave that situation for a time at least? This is a big question. I want to read an example. This is not in a direct correlation, but there is an example. There are a few examples in the New Testament of people leaving oppressive situations. The Apostle Paul, in Acts chapter 9, verses 23 to 25, is one example. It says, When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him, but his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. He basically, he escaped. 
You know, Jesus actually escaped a couple times before he was actually crucified as well. So he, they're coming to stone him, and he kind of goes out the back. My point is this. There, there, are, there is precedent for leaving oppressive situations at certain times in certain ways. I'm not talking about avoiding suffering. I'm talking about what is prudent and what is reasonable. It's interesting that Peter, in the passage that follows what we were just reading in chapter 3, he goes into talking about wives and husbands. And he talks about how they are to treat one another. And there's this covenant that is there. And he's referring to the covenant. He even says to a husband that you are to treat your wife with honor, lest your prayers be hindered. So there's significance in the way that you treat a spouse, especially a husband to a wife. If you are not honoring her as the weaker vessel, Peter says, if you're not honoring her, he says your prayers are hindered. There's something off. Your covenant relationship with your spouse is directly correlated to your covenant relationship with God. Assuming we're talking to believers here. How does this apply then to a situation where the husband, for example, is not honoring his wife? Well, as I said, I think by all means, seek peace, seek to respect, but also seek accountability. Within the body, we are accountable for our actions. There's no like cheap grace. Let's not talk about cheap grace. We're done with that. Your actions have consequences, and certain actions the Bible draws specific attention to. Husbands and wives, parents and children, very significant the way that you treat each other. And men, it starts with us. It starts with the men. The attention is drawn to us first. And if you are abusing your authority there are consequences. So I just want to make this point. I want to I clarify what we mean here when we say to be silent in the midst of oppression. I don't think that means put up with it. I want you to hear me. Because the numbers tell that this is happening right now in our houses. And I want you to know, men... You will be held responsible, and women, do not put up with it. Do not put up with it. And we will care for you, and we will listen to, this, to what's going on. I want to say that as representing the pastoral team at this church. We will listen to you. Men, we will also listen to you. This is a significant thing. We want to put time towards this, and we want to care. And this is huge in the eyes of God. Jesus calls you. If someone leaves an oppressive situation for any reason, for whatever reason that would be, it doesn't mean they're leaving oppression. There is already enough oppression happening, and there will continue to be very difficult things because of these situations. And so it's not as if we're encouraging anyone to leave 
completely just ignore oppression. It's not able to be ignored. There's been so many hard things already, and there will continue to be hard things. And those Christ gives strength for. He does go with you, and he does walk through it with you. There is a way to leave threatening situations while still bearing up under the oppression. So I, wanna, I want us to hear that as we speak about this, that Christ's example still leads us to places within those hard situations. And it might mean some things just need to stop. The Word of God applies to us in various ways, and uh, that's one of them that we have to tease out and nuance as we talk about the way to address oppression and the way to respond as a follower of Jesus. Jesus, as we see, doesn't open his mouth. He speaks no deceit. so that we can open our mouths in declaring his excellencies. He is silent so that we can declare him. Not so that we can defend ourselves, but that we can declare him. As we draw to conclusion, I want to read this passage from Acts chapter 8. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. And so Philip goes, he meets an Ethiopian on the road. The Spirit says to Philip, go over, join his chariot, go talk to him. Philip goes to him. And Philip asks him, do you understand what you're reading? And the man says, how can I unless somebody guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of Scripture was this one right here. Like a sheep who is led to the slaughter... And like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. And who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this about himself or about someone else? And Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with the scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And so I want to I, I draw us to this place of seeing that Jesus is silent so that we can declare. He is silent so that we can declare what? Him. Peter, it says, began to speak about the good news of Jesus. We don't open our mouths to defend ourselves as we are oppressed, as we are persecuted. As we open our mouths to declare Jesus because he didn't open his mouth. You can. You are able to declare his praise, declare his goodness. Those phrases are used, I think, very specifically in this passage to bring attention to that. That Jesus doesn't open his mouth, and then it says Philip opened his mouth. And so we are called in oppression not just to be silent in regard to our oppressors and our accusations, but to declare one who is good. Declare one who has gone before us. Declare the good news of Jesus. This is what we are called to do. 
And Andrew Brunson, again, he could have responded with all sorts of rebuttals and even anger. He could have lashed out. He knew he was innocent. The Turkish government even knew he was innocent. He was just a scapegoat for their plans. And yet he had a better way in mind. He submitted himself to the overseer of his soul. And he talked about the gospel in prison. And people are blessed. The nations are blessed. And as we hear that story, we might think, oh, this is, this is, yeah, this is what I, this is, well, yeah, we got to do that. That's right. You know, I want to be like that. I want to be like that when, when hard times come. And I just want to encourage us as we go in the mundane situations of life, how do you respond to false accusations? How do you respond to your own children who make stuff up about you? <laughs> didn't you say this? No, actually, I didn't. No, I, d- I didn't say that. I never said that. Yes, you did. No, I, I didn't say that. The mundane situations of life are what reveal the heart of a person. You know, Andrew Brunson endured many things because he was a man of his word. He was a man in the word. He was a man that found Jesus to be his friend. And when the, when the prison guards came, he was drawing out of a well that was already there. When Jesus was oppressed and falsely accused, he was drawing out of a well of experience with the Lord. You know, he goes and prays to the Father numerous times. In the scriptures, it says he, re- he, he removed himself from the people and the crowds and he went up to a desolate place to pray. Now, why, you, why go to a desolate place to pray? I don't know, but he went to a desolate place to pray. He drew out of a well. And we draw out of the well of our heart when we respond to these difficult accusations. So in this gospel, is it, is it demonstrated in your life? Do you daily entrust yourself to the one who judges justly? Do you come to the Father? Do you depend on his judgment of you instead of the judgment of those around you? Do you know what his forgiveness feels like? Do you really know what his forgiveness feels like? Do you come to people in the humility of one who has been forgiven? Do you approach people like you've been forgiven? Like you've received grace? Or do you draw from a well of bitterness and self-defense and idolatry of your own self? Where do you draw from in your heart? Jesus shows us the power of the gospel in his own life, and he offers that to us. In some sense, actually, we draw from his well. It's a substitute, remember? He has been substituted. Your poisoned, bitter wells are substituted with the, with the waters of life that flow from his heart. Do you draw from that? So as the team comes back up, I want us to ask the Lord to help us to draw from that in these last minutes that we have and Maybe you're feeling like, um, yeah, you're trying to identify places in your heart where you, where you don't, you don't respond well to people. You don't respond to oppression well. You don't respond 
to people telling you wrong things about who you are, accusing you falsely, you, you find that you get angry. You find with your children, with your spouse. Again, this starts in the everyday, the close relationships that we have. Your roommates, your siblings. Maybe you're finding that those, there's a lot there. And I encourage you to pray with, with people in this time that we have and to ask the Lord to help you, ask others to pray for you, that Jesus would be seen as glorious and as close in these things to you. So let's pray. Lord, I do ask that you would help us even as we come to you now. I ask that you strengthen us with the power that you give to face hard things, to respond in grace. I pray that our eyes would be drawn to you, Jesus, and not to ourselves. So we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. And I do want to I do want to make mention of in this time we have communion. It's available. It's being handed out or it's at the front over here. Communion cups that you can partake of the Lord's Supper. His body broken for you and his blood spilled for you if you're a believer and you follow him. You're encouraged to take part in that now as well.